Cool. Let's pray. Living God, as we gather before your word today, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We ask that you would walk among us and uh, open our hearts to hear your word through your Holy Spirit. Uh, so it's good to be here on the, the West Island. New Zealand has the North and South Island, and we uh, like to think of Australia as our distant cousin, the West Island. Um, you know, uh, I haven't been mocked too much for my accent, which is helpful. Um, and Michael's already done a really good job of introducing me. So today's message is number two in a series. We're following on last week from uh, Andrew Malone and his use of Leviticus 16 and the theme of drawing near to God. This week, I want to come at things from the other angle, looking at the fact that God draws near to us before we can ever even think or comprehend drawing near to him. We're using spatial language here to describe the work of atonement and the way that it gives us access to God. Now think about the knowledge of God in this way. Uh, Science involves discovery. So we, we observe, we test, we learn about things through experimentation. Um, Think about the coolest science experiment you did. Maybe it was dissecting something particularly gross. Uh, My science teacher used to put a gas tube into a thing of water and create fireballs inside the classroom. I'm not quite sure how she got away with that one. Um, But you learn about electricity by being given wires and batteries and little light bulbs and working to see what works, you know? And we can test and we can discover and we can observe from the physical world quantifiable knowledge about the way that things work. We can't discover God in the same way. God is not an object lying around waiting to be discovered. God is not an object that we can claim mastery of or comprehension of. Despite my best efforts in writing a PhD thesis, I still can't claim I know everything about God. God is not a test subject. And so in allowing us access to the knowledge of God, God has to make the first move. We can't choose independently of that first God move to find God, to discover God. Think of your doctrine of revelation. And so scripture is full of examples of God making the first move. Genesis 1, God creates everything. Uh, My students in New Zealand like to point out that it's not like God has had a mother telling him to do his homework. God chose to create. No one forces him to. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and asks him to follow. Now, while Abraham's choice of obedience and following is important, what is actually more important is God's first call, God who makes the first move. If God hadn't called, Abraham wouldn't have had someone to follow. In Leviticus 16, which Andrew talked about last week, God establishes the Mosaic law in the place of the tabernacle. It's not like the priesthood vestry got together one day and had a brainstorming committee meeting and said, let's set up a tabernacle and later a temple. That would be a great way for us to get access to God. Instead, it was God's initiative and God's command which makes a way for the high priest to be able to come into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the Israelites. The same pattern is seen in the calling of the prophets. Nowhere does a prophet decide, I will be a mouthpiece for the Lord. That generally is when someone becomes a false prophet, Uh, not a a good label to get attached. Instead, it is God who chooses and marks out those who will speak for him. We see this in the calling of Jeremiah. God says, before you were born, I knew you and I set you apart as a prophet to the nations. Now, there's plenty more examples which we don't have time to go into. But the Old Testament pattern is clear. God makes the first move. God initiates. God starts the process. 
But things come even more clearly into focus when we turn to the New Testament. The Old Testament provides this pattern and Jesus fulfills it. So I want to look at this image of the incarnation as God's drawing near to us. As one of many images that fill out our understanding of the atonement, again, it's not the only image, taking our cue from the Nicene Creed and the magnificent lines that refer to the Son's incarnation for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary and became human. Now, these creedal lines suggest that God becoming human is an important part of our understanding of atonement and salvation. And yet I think often we're in such a hurry to get to the cross that we don't stop and linger over this rich mystery. What really matters, we say, is the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. And I agree. But we have too shallow an understanding of the work of atonement. If in our desire to rightly communicate the great significance of the events of the crucifixion, We don't pause to linger here briefly for a moment to make camp on the mystery of God becoming human. There is no greater sense of God drawing near to us than this. The incredible act of the creator becoming part of his creation. The eternal one entering into space and time and taking on our human flesh. Now this really hit home for me one year at a Christmas Eve service I was coordinating. Pentecostals rarely do church on Christmas Day, so we do Christmas Eve services instead. And the question in my mind as I listened to a sermon on the cross was, what is, why are we preaching Easter and not Christmas? Now, I am all for a good gospel message at Christmas. It's the moment when we've got the masses in, and it's a really good chance to communicate who Jesus is. But I think that sometimes we talk about it in a way that makes it seem as if Jesus' humanity is almost extraneous to the work of salvation. It's something that had to happen, but we're we're kind of skipping past it. It's not actually important. We don't think about the fact that the Son of God lived among us for 33 years as a human. We see in the Gospels that he really experiences and really is human in the same way as we are. Jesus gets tired. He wants to go away from the crowds. He's hungry, he's thirsty, he gets angry. And despite the fact that when pastors and theologians and leaders gathered to give expression to the Nicene Creed, right? Now think about how short the Nicene Creed is compared to the many books in the library. And of that, they still chose to give these five lines to emphasizing the becoming human of God. And so it's here that our reading from Hebrews has much to say to us. Written by an unknown figure, Hebrews is full of exposition and exhortation and moves back and forward between the two, teaching about the supremacy of Christ and encouraging the recipients on that basis to faithfully hold fast to Christ's teaching. Hebrews unashamedly declares the reality of Christ becoming human and the importance of this for our salvation. Now Hebrews 1 opens with a strong declaration of the supremacy and worthiness of God's Son, the creator and heir of all things, the one who upholds the universe by his power, the one greater than the angels, the one who will reign and rule over all for all time. And after this opening, opening vision of the grandeur of the Son, there's a catena of Old Testament verses demonstrating the superiority of the Son to the angels and the everlasting nature of his rule. 
And the goal of all these references that we find in Hebrews 1 is to bring overwhelming evidence to bear on the claims that the author is making. It's similar to a trial I was on as a juror some years ago. We spent nine days listening to the Crown present factual evidence that the accused had plotted to escape from prison, handcuffed two guards together while being uh, escorted to a child custody meeting in the city, which is therefore kidnapping under a niche fact of law. He'd escaped, he'd hidden a ceiling, he'd then fallen through the ceiling into a woman's bathroom and been recaptured by police, all in the space of two hours. (laughs) The defendant, uh, who we weren't supposed to know anything about him, but we knew he was already in prison for a range of other things, um, chose not to have a lawyer. He instead put himself on the stand, and his entire defense was to take the oath and to testify, to promise to tell the truth, and to speak about his experience for 30 minutes. Didn't take us long to unanimously find him guilty. We were convinced by the evidence in the case which the Crown prosecutors had built. This is the same thing that's going on in Hebrews 1. Hebrews 2 then follows up this convincing argument for Christ's supremacy with an exhortation in the Greek imperative. Therefore, on the basis of Christ's supremacy, let us pay attention to what we have heard. It's almost like the author is stopping and yelling, stop and listen, this is important. Surely the message of the Son demands our utmost attention and commitment. The writer of Hebrews then returns to the flow of his teaching about Christ. Rhea here reminded again that all things in heaven and earth have been placed under the sovereignty of the Son. And so two things are being held in tension here. On one hand, Jesus has sovereignty over all things, even though we do not see this fully revealed yet. And at the same time, Jesus is the one who became lower than the angels and suffers death on our behalf. But it's this which leads to his being crowned with glory and honor. In Hebrews, the supremacy and exaltation of the Son of God are directly tied to the Son's taking on of humanity, his suffering, and his death. These are themes which occupy the author throughout the whole book, as I'm sure Andrew could tell us much more about. But it's in today's text that I think the author of Hebrews really gets for the first time into the meat of his teaching on the Incarnation. And so Hebrews 2, 10 to 18, is really helpful for us as we look at what it means to explore the creedal statement that it is for our salvation that Christ becomes human. Hebrews 2.10 opens with a really interesting saying that it was fitting or appropriate to make the author of salvation perfect through suffering. And I really like what William Lane suggests here. He says that what takes place in Jesus is not surprising or out of character for God. Instead, the suffering of God in Christ is consistent with God's great love for his people. The method was appropriate to the end goal. The salvation of all things, or as the writer of Hebrews puts it, the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory. Jesus' suffering and the humility of taking on the limitations of human flesh doesn't negate God's power and authority. Rather, it demonstrates the reality and the magnitude of God's love for us. Hebrews 2.11 explains that both the one who makes holy and the ones who are made holy, the sanctifier and the sanctified, have a common relationship, or they are of the same family as the translation we uh, heard read today says. Now, while there's some debate about what this common source is, whether it's relationship to God or humanity or the common ancestor of Abraham or Adam, the reality is that there is a solidarity that Jesus has with us, and therefore he names us his siblings. He names us his brothers and sisters in Christ. This genuine and real relationship with Jesus 
reflects the reality that God names us as his children. Again, the order of God making the first move comes in here. We can't stick up our hand and say, God, I want to be your child, if God hadn't already predetermined to name us his children. Hebrews 2, 12 and 13 sees further use of Old Testament quotations in the same style as Hebrews 1. This time a series of three references from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8. In the first one, the emphasis falls on the term brothers. The risen and exalted Jesus, the creator of all things, is naming us as his siblings. The second and third quotations are from Isaiah 8, thought to express Jesus' trust in his father in entering into sin and suffering and death. And the solidarity between us and him. Jesus names us as belonging to him. But it's in verse 14 to 18 that the importance of Jesus' humanity, his becoming like we are, really comes into view. A number of important points are made which build upon each other. First, Jesus shares in our humanity so that through his death he might free us and destroy the devil who holds the power of death. By Jesus doing so, we are freed from slavery to the fear of death. But in order to do this, Jesus had to be made like us in every way so that he could stand in as our high priest and do the work of atonement. And finally, because he has done this, because he has been suffered and tempted as we are, he is able to help us in our suffering and our temptation. So I want to zero in for the last few minutes on this phrase that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way. Jesus' humanity was not some kind of superhumanity or even the pre-tainted, untainted pre-fall humanity of Adam. Jesus' humanity was the real deal. God chose to draw near to us, so near that he became one of us and one with us. The creator has stepped into creation and taken on the limitations of our humanity. The temptation to sin, the sneaking whispers that no one will know is not a big deal. The selfish impulses that drive us to make decisions which don't reflect the kingdom of God. All of our weakness and our frailty. And yet, despite becoming as we are in every way, in our self-centeredness, in our weakness, in our turning away from God, in the stuff that makes me look at myself sometimes going, Kate, why are you such an idiot? The son does this without acting like us. He never sins. He draws so close to us that he becomes like us. But unlike us, he lives out his human life in an orientation to the kingdom of God. Moment by moment, the son lives in obedience to the father. Now, this is what Irenaeus describes as the work of recapitulation and Athanasius discusses in On the Incarnation. The work of atonement is not only limited to the moment of Christ's death on the cross. The cross is the climax of Christ's atoning work for us. But this incarnational focus gives atoning significance to the entire life of Christ. From his birth to his resurrection, he is able to stand in our place and on our behalf. He is both our representative and our substitute. Jesus becomes like we are in every respect. He is able to stand in our place as the high priest and deal with the consequences of our sin. But he does so as one who stands alongside us and with us rather than as one who stands over us, condemning us. It's only because God has done this, because God has come and drawn so near in the incarnation, that we are able to draw near to God. Now, I find this profoundly encouraging because while there is a very true element to our understanding of salvation is God's judgment on everything that stands in opposition to God. Jesus has come to stand with us in that place of judgment and receives it in our stead. 
His incarnation is the concrete manifestation of how far God chose to go in loving us. I remember um, taking a paper on the Gospel of John and working our way through Greek translations and being quite taken with the idea that we can translate John 3.16. Instead of saying God loved the world so much that he gave his son, so much referring to the, the bigness of God's love, we can translate it in this way. God loves the world in this way by giving his son, that the giving of the son is the concrete manifestation of God's love towards us. The gift of the son, not simply as a sacrificial victim, but as one who has entered fully into the human experience, is an incredible tangible sign of God's commitment to renew, redeem, and reconcile humanity to himself. Jesus becoming like we are means that he understands. He gets it. Hebrews speaks much uh, of this topic later on from 4.14 onwards. Jesus is the high priest who is not unfamiliar with our struggles and our sufferings and our, uh, perhaps at this point in the semester, our challenge of essay writing and studying for exams. Jesus is the one urging us on to finish the race. We are invited to draw near the throne of God in confidence that there we will receive grace and find mercy in our time of need. This is God's promise to us today and every day. He's not a God who is far off and removed, who is doing salvation as something on the side or from far away, but he's a God who has entered fully into the human experience, and he draws near to us in this way so that we are able to draw near to him. And so that is the God that we proclaim and that we know. Thank you.